1: Take what you know, and it's but a time when you get yourself in a are I want to know something, Jesus. Uh, I think about Everyone won't i hold in it, things are real now. I'll have a you single you wanting you. Hey, it's a ratio. Okay, though. It's a ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> you're a phenomenal person. I mean, you're legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. I'm thinking I'm going to do Hollywood Shuffle. And so I go to Paul, you know, and I'm like asking people to be in the movie. A lot of people said no to me. And so I say, hey, Paul. Uh, Mr. Mooney, I'm going to do a movie. Would you be in the movie? And he goes, have you ever directed a movie before? And I go, no. Have you ever ri- written a movie before? I go, no. He says, either you're the dumbest nigga I've ever met or you're a genius. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Robert Townsend is one of the great filmmakers of our time. He's the man behind The Hollywood Shuffle, The Five Heartbeats, and so many other things. It's been a long career of amazing films, comedy, and there's a message inside of his work that I didn't quite expect him to say. The man's got stories about everybody because he's been in Hollywood forever. So it was a joy and an honor. To talk to the man, the myth, the legend, Robert Townsend on Toure Show. I've been fucking with you for so long; it's crazy. I saw Hollywood Shuffle in a theater in Boston when I was in high school. Like, yo, I'm by myself, my crew is not interested. I don't care. My family is not interested. I don't care. I saw a trailer. I'm like, I have to see that. And I was the, I'm was, i sure I was there early, like in terms of like one of the first weeks that it was out. Wow. And it blew my mind. I loved that film, right? And I know it's been a while. You're out talking about it. Just talk to me a little bit about making that film because it was so... It was so beautiful and such a challenge. It it was like, um, it it was very much like hip hop. And like, we're going to put a mirror on the world, but also be part of the world, but also challenge the, right? It's not a normal film. It questions constantly, can film do this? What about this? What if I break this convention? Are you okay with that? Like, yes, I'm rolling with
1: you. (laughs) So let let me say this. Um, You don't know what you don't know. So when we were doing Hollywood Shuffle, myself, Keenan Ivory Wayans, uh, Mm. we were just fed up with the system. You know, sometimes people, uh, uh, you you know, black people are always put in a box and part of the fight is trying to get out of the box. How do we get out of the box? And so as young artists, I found myself in this box of stereotypes of the, the gang member, the drug dealer, the hustler, the stoolie,
0: the Eddie Murphy
1: type, the Eddie Murphy type at back then. So it was like just trying to figure it out. So when we started, I had sixty thousand dollars in the bank and I had just finished doing uh, Streets of Fire. I did American Flyers with Kevin Costner and I had done a soldier story. And after a soldier story, I go, this is the kind of movies I really want to do. And my agents were like, Robert, they do one black movie a year. Just be happy and shut up. And I was like, I want to make my own movies. I want to, you know, and that's when it started. And Keenan and I, I just remember Keenan was like, Rob, you didn't go to film school. You never directed nothing. And I was like, so we'll figure it out. And then Keenan was the first what one made, to believe it. You know, <laughs> what made you think
0: that you could do it without any of that background and with your own real money on the line. Let me
1: say this. <clears throat> I had done extra work for seven years at that point. I was uh, extra in the whiz. I was extra in the movie, the warriors. I was uh, extra on soap operas, like all my children. And so I was on the peripheral watching how everything was working and it didn't look that hard. I was just like, mm, they set up the camera. Da, 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 da. And, and I don't know when you're an extra, either you hang out and chase the girls or play cards. And I was like watching like how they were setting up the camera. So I wasn't afraid. And the other thing that I want to say is that um, I come out of the theater. So I'm from Chicago, the west side of Chicago. And I was a part of X-Bag, Experimental Black Actors Guild. And I saw people of color, Black writers, Black directors, Black producers, my mentor, Mr. Payne Rami. I saw them doing it. So that part was in my head too, because I, I grew up around it. So that's why I wasn't afraid, but it, it, you know, it's what you don't know. You don't know.
0: Mm. There's so many moments from Hollywood shuffle that just stand out. Chris Rock saying, I want one rib.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> you want one order of ribs. No, that's, that's not, that's from, <laughs> that's from, I'm gonna get you sucker.
0: Excuse me, excuse me, excuse <laughs> that's me. That's Chris me. Rock, I'm going to
1: get you sucker. Because Keenan and I use black, everybody the same, so yeah, that's how I'm going to get you sucker, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Black actor school. Yes. Right, when they're coming over the hill, and I'm I'm like, you're killing me. Because <laughs> it, it's, it's I'm, I'm in the film, but then you break character into the real character of the character. I'm like, you're, you're killing me. I'm loving this. Well, you, you
1: know, let, let me say this. Uh, Keenan and I are students of film and, you know, technology, all of that. And so the idea of doing a commercial about black actors and going to a black acting school and all the instructors are white. That's what we were. going through. Back then in the 80s, that's what we were going through. We had, you know, uh, uh, casting directors, directors telling us, you know, uh, no, no, no. A black man should do this. No, no, no. Look at me. Homeboy. I want my money. Say, I want my money. And so we, <laughs> we were going through it. And rather than go crazy, we said, let's, you know, that, the black acting school was a part of my stand up when I was, you know, starting out at the improv. I used to do a whole routine about, you know, going to these auditions. And then Keenan came up with the idea and said, we should do a full out sketch and have all these actors come in and talk about, and do testimonials. So it, it came out of, it came out of the madness. It came, and, and here's the thing. Um, when you love what you do, you, you just want to, I just, I had a pure heart, you know, as a, you know, as an actor, I just want to do everything. And I didn't know that they would put me in a box and, and that's, you know, and Hollywood shuffle was about breaking out of that box.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you made a, a very insidery, critique of Hollywood at a time when the news about what was going on in Hollywood was far less. Now we hear all these stories that back then we didn't. And even as a, as a teenager living in Boston, knowing nobody in Hollywood, I I felt it. And I felt like I understood, you know, like the player would have gone over my head at that point. Right. Right. But like Hollywood, I fully understood, even though I've never been on a set, Not like that. Like, but I fully understood the critique of Hollywood because it seemed like the critique that we as black people had of America in general.
1: Well, you know, I I think the themes of Hollywood shuffle are very universal. You know, at the the Mm -hmm. core is a dreamer, somebody that has a dream. And then all of a sudden they find themselves in this little bit of a nightmare. And, uh, when you really you know, it's it's interesting because when I was a kid watching like Humphrey Bogard movies, I never noticed the black people. And then when I started to mm. notice the black people in those old black and white movies, they talk different. Like, yes, yeah, No, I don't, you know. And I was like, Oh, wait a minute, they're being directed to act like this. So mm. part of what we were doing, because Keenan and I were both looking at where we are in history, where we are in, in movies, and back then, like we've come a long way. You know, we still have a ways to go. But when you think in terms of. If I get on the elevator and a white woman grabs her purse, I know it's Mm. because she saw images of black men as Mm -hmm. thieves and criminals and what have you. And when it happens, you just go, oh, man, why? You know, it's like like I was, uh, you know, walking out, you know, sometimes you walk down the street and then I can see a a white couple cross the street like I'm going to rob them. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I followed them and, and I robbed them. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they want, they asked for it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they were asking for it. So, so, so the film, you, you know, the film was like, it was film school for me. We learned so much about production and just what, what is possible. Did it cost 60 or did you spend more than that? Uh, I initially had 60,000 in the bank, uh, and I didn't know what I was doing. I just wanted to make a movie. So I went through the 60 really fast because I didn't know what I was doing. And then that's when I went on the road and I did stand up for about three weeks. And when I came home, I had a big stack of mail and it was nothing but applications for credit cards, Chevron, Shell, mobile, uh, Visa, MasterCard, preferred Visa. And then I was like, oh, I can finish the film with credit cards. And then that's when I rolled the dice and took my fate in my own hands. I go, nobody knows where the money's coming from. I said, I can get the cash from the credit card to charge everything. I didn't want anybody to think that the film was cheap. So I couldn't say, I'm waiting on a credit card. Then people would go like, this is a rinky-dink movie. So I just pretended like we were having writer's block and we were writing. And then when the other visa came in, I was ready to shoot.
0: (laughs) The film did change your life, right? It it presented you to Hollywood as writer, actor, director, and it it sent you on a trajectory that you've never come down from.
1: Let me say this. Um, it, It is the gift that keeps giving, you know, because I've been blessed to write, direct, produce, work with a who's who, and it's all because of this one film that I you know, it's, it's kind of like being fearless. You know, it's like you take a chance. At one point, you just, you know, you just break through. And for me, I wasn't going to be, let me say this, because it's not about complaining. You know, there's a lot of people that complain about Hollywood and everything. And I never wanted to be one of those people that goes like, they treat us bad. I was like, well, let's do something about it, guys. And that's where I found my voice. And I think, you know, to this day, you know, it's been the gift because I found my way. You know, I love writing. I love directing. I I love producing. I love, you know, being an artist. So it's just a lot of fun.
0: You've seen Hollywood go through a lot of different stages. I think now and given the last, let's say, five, seven, ten years, we are in a golden age for black visual art in terms of there's more black people in front of and behind the camera in movies and in television, making authentic things that we are like, this is beautiful and it represents or scary or whatever or funny. And it represents how we really feel about things. Do you, do you see it that way?
1: Uh, you know, I do. I do. I mean, you know, it's funny. So let me just, you know, this is the, it can be the best of times and the worst of times because they're, I'm all, you know, there's a lot of wonderful, amazing images. And then there's some other images that I go, you know, but (laughs) the only difference now is that we do have more Black creatives that are doing some amazing work. But the good news and the bad news the good news is that everybody has a camera. The bad news is that everybody has a camera. So it's Mm, just, it's all about quality control because we have a lot of stuff. And then how much of the stuff is really great? And so that's, you know, where I think now we just need to make sure that the quality is there.
0: You worked on something really interesting recently for Netflix, Kaleidoscope, right? Starring Giancarlo Esposito, Yes, who I love <laughs> immensely. And the big thing with Kaleidoscope was that we're going to send it out in randomized order for every different subscriber and you can watch it in different orders and you get a different story, right? The, the last one's going to be the same. The first one's going to be the same for everybody, but the journey. In the, so you directed, was it two or three of the I, I directed, pieces? I directed
1: two. I directed Green and I directed Violet. And So what did, well, the question that I'm wondering, what did they tell you in
0: terms of, you know, Here's what you're going to do. Here's your script. Here's, here's how, here's where you have freedom and here's what we need you to do so that it fits in to the rest of the puzzle.
1: Well, the the showrunner, Eric Garcia, he walked, you know, he goes, uh, one, I read all the episodes. So then it's eight episodes, limited series. So I read all eight of the episodes and there are breadcrumbs sprinkled throughout each episode. So Eric would say, just pay a little more of attention to this. Pay a little bit more attention because we're setting something up. And so then I go, oh, so if you whatever order you watch it in, there are these these little breadcrumbs that are sprinkled throughout that you go like, oh, in the in the pink episode. Oh, it's in the green. That's when he first thought it. Oh, in the violet. Oh, so that's why. in you know, so. It's Eric is like, you know, he's on some genius stuff because I go, how did you figure this out? And when I first read the scripts, there's so many things I go like, what does the ball mean? He goes, read episode two. Oh, read episode four. Boom. Oh, and seven. So it's. It's something that has never been done before, and. It was really, uh, it's, it's been really successful because a lot of people go, I started with the, the, the yellow episode, you know, and then I run into people on the streets and it like, when I got to your episode, I knew what I was talking, you know? So it's, it's a, it's a good, it's a good feeling.
0: It's a, it's an epic achievement. Um, people still talk about the five heartbeats. It's a classic from that era. And I think it, it emotionally moves people. Um, and it still plays. On cable, so new audiences keep rediscovering it. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's a classic, and I think when we talk about the love we have for musicians and the heartbreak that we experience seeing musicians' careers inevitably uh, uh, trail downward, um, the film really captures a lot of what we
1: what we go through. Let, let me say this: uh, the Five Harpies is so personal for me because when I was a kid. In 1968, the Temptations broke up and I was in Chicago. Herb Kent, the cool gent was talking about David Ruffin leaving the group. And I don't know why that, you know, devastated me because I was like, Temptations, that was my group, all those songs and David Ruffin's voice. And it always stayed in my brain. And so after Hollywood Shuffle, uh, the studio was like, what do you want to do next? What's the next movie? And I said to Keenan, you know, because we were going to write it together. I want to know what happened to The Temptations, but I didn't have the, the guts to go. I'm going to go to Barry Gordy and get the rights. I was like, I'll create my own story about what happened. And so recently I did a doc, two, two years ago, I did a documentary, uh, The Making of the Five Heartbeats. And there's a scene, you know, that I talk about when I went to go meet David Ruffin. And basically he was at some little lounge on Crenshaw performing and he's strung out and I go to mm-hmm. talk to him because I wanted him to be a technical advisor on the film and he's snorting and nah, making sounds and I can see he was struggling. And so me and, you know, Keenan were like, you know, Rob, once we get the movie green lit, we're going to put him in rehab and take care of this man, you know? And, uh, because he was one of my heroes. But then what happens is that he dies when the movie comes out. And mm-hmm. uh, I end up, you know, going to the funeral and, and, and helping to pay for the funeral. You know, so it's like a full circle moment because he was my hero. But that film is close to my heart because I never knew what those artists went through. I started we, st- we went down the rabbit hole and we were like, oh, they made a lot of money. They didn't make a lot of money. Oh, man, mm-hmm. you know, it was, they were all like 16, 17 and they just had dreams in their eyes. And then the Dales, you know, shared a lot with me as well. But, but that film, I mean, uh, recently, for example, Nas d- dropped his new album and legit the second track samples A Heart is a House for Love. And I was like, what, you know, everybody was calling, but it's like a lot of love. So that movie is, has a special place in my heart.
0: I think that the, uh, the five heartbeats in Hollywood Shuffle are similar in that, we have black creative people entering systems and then finding it's impossible to be myself, to be black, to be who I want to be within these systems. Right. And that seems to be kind of like the story you're telling in both those pieces. You
1: know, it's it's I hadn't thought about it like that, but you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's kind of like like in the five hardbeats when we have the scene about them not being on their own album cover and. When Mm. we did the research on that, that happened to a lot of groups where they go, hey, we're trying to sell records. If white people see your your black faces, they're not going to sell. So we're going to put whatever, an inanimate object, a rose, a flower or (laughs) a white couple so that we can sell records. So, uh, yeah, you know, and it's and it happened to a lot of groups. And so when people you know, it's so funny because (laughs) on social media, people really get mad because they go like, you mean the five Harvey's not a real group? they're not a real (laughs) group. And it's like, no, they don't exist. You know, because people love that movie and they think, you know, I know musicians that go, that experience was their experience. And it it makes my heart hurt because we were just acting in a film, but they really lived it.
0: Well, what do you think is the message that you have been trying to put forward through your work?
1: (sighs) You know, I'm all about elevating people of color. So everything Mm. I do, my hidden agenda is to. To elevate us, but also to to make us human. Somebody asked me a long time Mm. ago and they said, what what is the ideal role you want to play, Robert? And I was like a human being because we were for so many years supercharged. He's the bad brother. He's the so and so. He's the slow brother. He's the super, you know, and I was like. No. how do we get to like recently I directed uh the limited series best man and mm-hmm. you know Malcolm Lee I, I you know I love him because I was like he painted on a canvas that we normally don't paint on where they're you know black professionals living life and dealing with life and just life shit And it was beautiful. And so directing this and working, it was my first time working with Morris and Nia and Melissa and Terrence. And I had the best time, but it it was just, that's a canvas that we normally don't get a chance to paint on. You know what I mean? There's nothing, it's just human life and friends. And when you outgrow your friends and marriage and relationships and making stupid mistakes and learning from your mistakes. And so it's stuff like that, that my entire career I've, you know, try to elevate people of color because I think movies are powerful and TV shows are powerful. So you're going to learn life lessons when you watch certain shows. And for me, I I plant little, you know, nuggets in there.
0: You made me think about how Michael B. Jordan is talking about, I don't want to audition or read or whatever for movies that are meant for black males. I want to go after roles that are meant for white men and I'll make them black, but I think what that's what you're talking about, that I'm going to get to more humanity out of the roles that are offered to white men than the roles that are offered to black people.
1: Well, well, here's the thing. Uh, I think sometimes. I don't know if it's an unconscious thing, but they think that sometimes the writing is on a certain it's on it's on it's. It's it's on one level. There's not layers. And I think when you the movies that I love, that I love to watch, the characters are complicated and um, they're well crafted. And I think a lot of times, like like Five Harbys, Keenan and I did 25 drafts. We were trying to find all these little moments, nuances. And I just think that. Um, when you look at the writing, sometimes it's just like taking that much more time to craft a character because. The other scripts, you know, that, you know, are not uh, written as black. They just have all those beautiful nuances that I think actors love to play. Mm.
0: You know, you, you talk about directing something like The Best Man or Five Heartbeats, where you got a whole ton of experienced people standing there, right? And you're directing, and obviously they're respecting you, but there's a way that a good director... Speaks to the cast, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been on a couple sets, and I noticed a lot of times, you know, you try to talk to the actor quietly because this note is just for them to not sort of expose the conversation to others, and just different things that people who are good directors do to respect the actors in their craft. And when you have actors with talent and ego and history, you know, we, we got to approach them in the right way, right? So. So what, is, what, is, what does great directing look like, right, when you're on set and we got a bunch of really strong actors around you?
1: To me, um, <clears throat> you have to emotionally track every character. I got to know if I've got, you know, like there was a scene in uh, Best Man that I directed with all the cast there. And so as a director, I emotionally have to know where everybody is. She's sad and she's sad because of this, but she's not going to let the world know he has something to prove. And so he's going to push a little bit more here. Uh, He doesn't like fighting, so he's got to try to be the peacemaker. So I'm kind of emotionally tracking where everybody is. So when I give my notes, I give notes that are very specific. It's not like, well, you're going to do right now. You're not feeling her and you know, she's lied to you, but you don't want her to know she's lied to you. Okay, here we go. Everybody quiet, please. And so I give like, and then everybody goes, ooh, ooh, Robert. Ooh, I feel that. Okay. But, but you, you, you know, didn't
0: so. tell him or her what to do. You gave them an emotional prompt. And then, okay, you you figure out how to make that, how to embrace that into your character.
1: Well, when, when you have really great actors, look, so I, I say this all the time, you know, when I'm directing, when you've cast really well, directing is like this. That's all directing is. If you've cast really poorly,
0: eh, it's like that, ah,
1: you know, but so <laughs> so when it's, I direct, it's a bigger motion when I direct. I just do this. That's it. Just slight. Just like, I mean, because it's, it's kind of like. Um, they're pros. It's, it's like uh, a Stradivarius violin. You know, yeah. those things are so delicate. So that you you gotta do that. You don't go like I'm gonna play this thing. It's like that. So when you have somebody like Terrence Howard or Morris Chestnut or uh Tay Diggs, you know, Sana. I gave Sanaa a, a tweak, and it's just like when you have really fine actors. Like there's a there's a scene uh, in Best Man when they're uh Uh, going to a therapist and Tay's on one side of the couch and Sana's on the other side of the couch. And I just remember for like 40 minutes, we just talked about relationships and when relationships end and when your heart is breaking and to get to the point where you're trying to save it, but you don't know if you can save it. And so we got into this discussion and then when you start to make it real, it focuses it in a whole nother way because then now people are like, Oh yeah. Oh man. Oh, I went through a divorce. Oh man. Oh, I, I I messed up. I really did. So we got to something real. And then as those emotions started coming out, you see it on the screen, but you have to use, it's it's what we call real substitution, real emotion. So you
0: are talking to get them to the real emotion that matches where you want to be in the scene. And when they get to it in real life, then we
1: start shooting. Well, the thing is that um, when you have really great actors, we're talking in secondhand. You know, we're, 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 shor- we're talking in shorthand. We're talking in shorthand because it's like, da-da-da-da. And, and, you know, like, Terrence will just cut his eyes and he goes, got it. You know, <laughs> and then when you hear got it, it's just like, yeah and, uh, and, and Nia, you know, Nia goes, ooh. She just has like you like directing her. I just had the best time because we would talk, and then she just goes, "Ooh," and then I know, okay, ba-ba-ba. Here we go. Quiet, please. Background and action, and then magic happens. I go, and here's the thing that I do. That uh, if you ask any of the actors now, you know what is Robert's catchphrase? What is Robert's Townsend? What does he say? I will simply say to my cast, "One more for love." So when I say one more for love, what I mean by that is I got what I need. Is there anything you would like to do? And then they go, oh, really? OK, ah, you know, and then that love take turns into magic. And I do it. You know, I, I, I anytime I work with actors, um Hallie, when I did baps with Halle Berry and I go one more for love she would light up you know Beyonce when I would go one more for love and she goes okay Robert you know and so it's kind of like they get relaxed they know it's in the can and then magic happens I get I just get out of the way There
0: is a pressure before that right before you get to the love take because I've heard even with a great actor, there's only so many takes you can do before people are like, I'm I'm tired and you're not going to get my best performance if you're asking me to do it six, seven times usually, right? Uh-huh. So you as a director kind of got to get them there quicker, right? Well, I, I, like you can't just sit there all day on one
1: speech. No, no, I only do three takes. Four takes if 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 there's a camera problem or something. I only do three because I'm in the hair and makeup trailer. I'm running lines. I'm talking through the beats. And then by the time we're ready to shoot, they are here. And then, and I've talked through all the beats and then they know exactly what they're doing. Like I move very fast. So I don't, I don't waste, I, if if I do six takes, there's a camera problem because I'm always casting, I, I cast really well. And I I know, you know, and it's kind of like um, the other side is that because I'm also an actor. So uh, I'm an actor's director because I understand the emotion. I know what they're going through. So I can say, hey, I need everybody quiet on the set. If you, you take the talk outside, I want to hear nothing because I know they've got an emotional moment that they're getting into. And somebody's like, yeah, so anyway, last night I was watching TV and I was like, blah, blah, blah. and I," and other people would go like, well, I'm just talking, Rob. And I'm like, no, 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 no. She's got to get into character. And about she's about to have this emotional breakdown. And you're talking about where you went and what you bought and what you ate for dinner. So, and sometimes, you know, like you, <laughs> I, I have to control the world to get everybody focused, to get the performance I want.
0: Are there some things that you do like that with the actors? You two are married. So I want you guys to spend more time together off the set. You two are fighting. So you, I don't want you to talk or things that help them prepare to, to, to be real when the camera starts?
1: Um, So here's something that I do. So I'll give you uh, Kaleidoscope, uh, the Violet episode. So we have Giancarlo and we have Robin. They are just meeting for the first time. So I take them into our our holding area and uh, I will find a song. And I think the song for them was Teddy Pendergrass. You're my latest, my greatest, my latest, greatest inspiration. And then I'll play the music. And then I'll walk them through the relationship. And I just say, just go with me. And I'm going to do it for 15 minutes. The first day you met, you see her across the park. Go touch her hand. You see something in her eyes. Say to him, I, I got to go back to work. And then it's like, can I get your number? And then I go, the first time you go to a movies, oh, you're going to see uh, Lady Sings the Blues is playing at a movie theater. And you're laughing together. Laugh, laugh, enjoy, enjoy. It's the first time you hold each other. Hold her tight, hug her, hug her, hug her you're the latest, you're the greatest. Now, just look in her eyes. See love, know love, understand love. Let her go. The first time you get into an argument, no, you make me sick. No, you're not listening to me. And go through it. And I'll do 15 minute relationship. Then I go, you're my latest, my latest. Close your eyes, close your eyes. Hold her tight. Cut. Let's go to the set. Let's get ready to shoot. And by that time, they feel like they've been in a whole relationship. And when you watch the episode, mm. you see this connection. But in that 15 minutes, I walk them through. I did the same thing on the five Harbies with Eddie and Baby Dow. I go, You love him, you love him, you love him, you guys fight, you love, she you love her. And I do, I, I've done that. Uh I did that with Mars show, Love Is, uh, and it was about relationships. So I have my tricks, you know. As, as a director, I have an arsenal. So I know how to get performance. I know how to, you know, connect actors because I understand acting, you know, uh, and how to process it. So I have different techniques. Yes.
0: I love that technique. It sounds like, it sounds like guided meditation.
1: Okay. (laughs) Let me say this. Let me say this. Uh, I did it with a hundred guys in the prison, when we did Kaleidoscope for the Green episode, and they're all supposed to, you know, spoiler—they're supposed to, you know, take mushrooms and everything goes upside down. So I had all the actors, and I would take them through warm-ups, and then blah, blah 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 blah, blah, ha ha ha. And if you watch that episode, you would swear that we've cast the whole room with Hollywood professional actors, and these are just extras, and we made a whole meal out of this this uh, uh, dramatic. Uh, sequence that Giancarlo and the other actor have, Peter, they have to escape. And so for me, it's just uh, finding a way to get actors into the moment and to make it real. I mean, the thing that I would say, if you look at my body of work, all my movies, all my television shows, you know, I, I try to craft it in such a way that it genuinely makes you cry. Like Holiday Heart with Ving Rhames and Alfre Woodard. There's stuff in there where Alfre was amazing and the little girl was amazing, but it's getting them to that place and pushing them in the right direction, Night, a slight nudge or what have you. Whoever I work with, I try to tailor the role to their body so that they give me the best work. And that's what I'm going for.
0: We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. this emotional awareness that you keep coming back to seems to be central to your
1: process. Well, it really is. I mean, uh, you, when it, here's the thing. We're creating a fantasy world, but the fantasy world must always feel real. I, I studied one of my first, um, not first, second acting teachers was Stella Adler. She was Marlon Brando's wow. acting teacher. And we were doing a scene in class from Julius Caesar and we're supposed to kill the guy. And one of the students had brought a real sword to class, like a real heavy sword. And it was sitting on the side. And, you know, we were like, kill him. Eh, 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 eh." And then she grabbed the heavy sword and lifted it up, this little frail woman. And she lifted the sword to the guy playing Caesar. And she lifted it high. And we were like, what is she doing? And then she says, if you're going to kill him, and then she went kill him, and she went down and brought the sword like right in here, and we were all like, oh, you know. And she goes, "It's the illusion that we want to create. So if, like, like for example, in the Best Man, um, Terrence has a heart attack. Spoiler alert: Terrence has that heart attack, you know, and he's about to die, and and, and Melissa starts freaking out, and I was like, it, it's got to feel like he's about to die." you got to really go there, and you've got to be scared enough rather than like, well, we know in the next episode he's going to live. No, 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 no. It's got to feel like he's going to die. So people that saw that episode, they go, did they kill off Terrence? You know, and that's the hook.
0: Mm, That's really powerful. Um, A Soldier Story is such an iconic film, and it's so amazing to look back at you having a relatively small role. Denzel is not the lead um, and, and it's a, it's, it's a, it's interesting because they, we should, they showed it to us in high school. I remember, and it was part of like, you know, I went to this private school where there's a lot of conversation about like race and racism in the eighties. Right. Which is not necessarily what in the in eighties we talked about it a lot, but whatever. And I remember watching the film and be like, yeah, racism. Yeah. And then you kind of get toward the end. And you're like. No. And I'm like, wait, wait, <laughs> you, you, teacher, you screwed me because it's a it's a black on black sort of racism we're dealing with, not a white on black. Um, but, you know, in retrospect, that sort of nuance of how we can be our own worst enemies is really it's, a, it's an amazing story.
1: You know, Charles Fuller, who just recently passed away, wrote the screenplay. Uh, he won the Pulitzer when they did it as a play. Um, Again, he came out of the Negro Ensemble Company. Brilliant writer, and he, the themes of that film, he 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 challenged us to look at race and look at our own you know hatred sometimes because and it all goes back to Willie Lynch you know treat the light skin better than the dark skin and if you create this chaos that will always be in their heads forever. And it still endures to this day. But I think it was brilliant that he explored that because every, I just recently hosted um, uh, for, for a TCM, a Turner classic movies, uh, the screening uh, for a soldier story. And it was interesting watching it again, because a lot of those things are still around today, you know, but Charles Fuller was the first one to bring it to the, the screen in a brilliant way. I mean, it's a great, a great villain, you know, the audience can be like, I
0: understand why he thinks that way. And like, we can understand, if you remember that time of like, you know, there's some black people who are going to hurt the race. So I'm going to do something about that. Um, It's a really powerful concept that was, that was very prevalent then.
1: Well, well, you know, let me say this. It's like, Sometimes you can watch the news like like, you know, and, and they go, We're gonna talk to somebody today that saw what happened out here. And then you have that black person that's like, so what I'm saying is he was coming and then the car was coming. I was like, damn Lord. And so I have that, I was like, Why that black person? Oh Lord, oh Lord. And and I was eating my script, he looked over at me and I was like, Girl, uh uh-uh. uh. And so I'm like, Oh, did they pick that black person in particular. So I have those days where I go like, why, you know, and then, you, you know, it's kind of like, are you laughing with us? or Are you laughing at us? And mm. I think sometimes when I see that, so when I hear it, like, when, when, uh, when, when Adolph sees, I was like, well, okay, we got to turn our blacks on the call of in eating, And, you know, you know, I, I understand, but you know, you know, but I think it, it, it brought up an interesting discussion about race and how we treat each other.
0: But that film was where you really learned how to do
1: what you have been doing, right? Yes. Well, let me say this. I studied Norman Jewison, the director, and I watched how he, he included us in the conversation. Would you do it like this? Mm. Would you say that like this? And the script was well crafted, but as he was figuring out his business, he he included us, and I just I was like, wow. And I used to call him Santa Claus eyes because he had this, you know, he's he's got these like really uh, compassionate, soft eyes, and like a little twinkle, a little smile in his eyes. It goes like, you know, Bobby, I want you to come over here. And when you're driving the jeep, you know, take your time, and you know, and he and it, with everybody, he would just take his time, and I was like, oh, okay. Because sometimes people say, "Hey, can a white man direct a black movie?" And I go with Norman. Yes, because he has a compassionate heart and he understands. Like, what I don't know, I don't know. So if you know, hey, is this how you would do it? And then he goes, like, "No, no, we would do this." It's like, okay, let's do it that way. Because sometimes when you see movies that are directed by directors that are not of you know color, they don't get any feedback from anybody. And you go like, like, you see, you see a black church and everybody's like, <laughs> <laughs> and I go, oh, okay. And the minister goes, good morning, y'all. Yeah! You know, and you're like, what the hell is going on? So, so it can be done. It can be done. But, but that, that experience changed my life for real.
0: When you're working alongside young Denzel, are you saying shit,
1: that guy's different?
0: or not or not yet. I mean it seemed like it, to be on that set you were probably like that guy's different.
1: Well, let me say this, uh you know Denzel and I started out together, so I kind of knew um you know, I knew what he was packing. It's like, it's like all gunslingers, you know, you, you got, you know, it's like, like, like the, you know, it's like the wild, wild west. Hey man, what's happening, man? You Everybody's a gunslinger. It's like, Oh, Townsend's is a comedy boy. Denzel's the da, 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 you know, so-and-so. So we were all like, as a matter of fact, when we were in Fort Smith, Arkansas, shooting the movie, um, it was, we would all hang out together. It was me, Denzel, David Allen Greer, and Uh, Hmm. and uh, Adolf Caesar. And we were kind of like the Black Pack. You know, we were the Rat Pack. We were just hanging out, you know, having fun. And we would, you know, because there was nothing to do. And we would just laugh, talk, hang out. But, you know, know, Denzel's always had his magic and his charisma. So that was, I wasn't, you know, surprised. No, not at all. Not at all. You
0: got a film full of killers and... Adolf Caesar, and even still, Denzel is still standing out.
1: Well, you know, I mean, uh, he had done the play as well, but it was really right. well cast. And at that point, you know, I mean, he, his instincts are amazing. Let me just say that about Denzel: his instincts are so amazing. So, when you think about uh, David Harris, who played Smalls with Denzel, the two of them were the the, the, the officers on patrol. Uh, having watched it again recently, it was just really well cast. Art, art Evans as Wilkie, you know, I despised him. I despised the sarge. He took my stripes, you know. I mean, all, it was just really. It's like really. Uh, Ruben Cannon did the casting, and he just did an amazing job. An amazing job. Wait, wait, well,
0: hold it. Since you were so close to Denzel, what is it that he does that is that that sets him
1: apart? Huh. You know what? He is. Um, he has amazing instincts, you know, and he trusts his instincts. So he. I don't know. It's just his gift. It's just his gift. It's like. uh he knows how to embody a character. And it's just like when people have that magic, you know, like he has that, it's like Marlon Brando has it, Al Pacino has it, Denzel has it, where he's a, he's a handsome man, but then he knows how to work, you know, his his magic. So like, even in that moment, how he comes into the room, I know like at the end, when we discover that he's the guy, you know, how he comes in with that energy, that's Benzel. Yes. Yeah, Norman is like, yes. okay, but it's like, in his mind, he's prepared as an actor. He's like, oh, they caught me on the road. I was running. It's raining outside. You know, I'm pissed off. I knew that the Smalls told on me. They're bringing me in, but I'm not going to give up. And he's done his acting homework so that when he comes in, he's got the rain. He probably asked for extra rain, extra water on his face. I mean, those are all like when an actor is like in the moment
0: Yeah, no, I remember that moment. Um so you directed you directed Eddie Murphy's Raw when Eddie Murphy was as hot as any stand-up maybe has ever been. I mean, like he was hot like fish grease. And I'm curious though like what do you as a director do? Cause Eddie's going to stand up there. He's going to walk around. He's going to crush the audience with these amazing, you know, with his jokes and his flair and his thing, you're going to set up what? Six, eight, 10 cameras mm-hmm. and capture it. Like wh- it, 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 it's a totally different job than doing a film or even a concert.
1: Well, well, the, the thing that I would say part of the job too is understanding comedy. So, you know, back then, hey, maybe this joke could be a little bit more physical. You know, I'm throwing, you got me, Keenan, and Eddie in a room, and yes, he's doing the concert, but hey, you could get a little bit more out of this joke here. Hey, you could be a little bit more physical in your body. Hey, take a beat here before you get into the next, because the audience is still laughing. So now, so I'll, I'll, I'll say this, you know, it's kind of like, Eddie is Eddie, man. He is, but it's kind of like- yeah. Michael Jordan, as great as Michael Jordan was, he still needed Phil Jackson because it's kind of like understanding. And so for me, uh, as you're setting up the cameras, it's really studying him as well to say, oh, he does that little thing with his hand there. We got to get that. You know, we need to be, be a little wider there or let's punch in really tight when he does the whole because, you know, you see, you know, let's go in for that. You know, so there is a part of me that is. And because I started as a stand-up, I understand it where I go, oh, we need this kind of coverage here. We need that kind of coverage. So it was more trying to find as many additional jokes, trying to, you know, um, every angle, you know. So, yeah, it is the camera work, but then it's also the rhythm of the joke, you know, come out on this joke, go in on that joke. Let's go tighter there. So it's thinking through the rhythm, too.
0: Hmm. Um, ask everyone who comes on the show, what does being black mean to you? And where is it? How does it show up in the work? And so much of your work has been elucidating blackness, talking about blackness. Um, but what, is, what, is, what does it mean to you? Wait, say, say that again. I lost you at the end. Yeah. Well, just what does blackness mean to you and how does it come into your work?
1: You know, what's interesting is that I was watching something the other day and they were talking about uh, Alzheimer's and the gentleman that discovered Alzheimer's. And then it went on to say, well, there was really this man of color who was really the one who discovered it, who did not get his credit. And I was like, what? And when I saw the man's face, the, 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 the black man's face, he had this dignity and this regalness to him. And as I looked at the photo, I said, it's true. It's true. So for me, I am a Trojan horse. I create comedy, drama, but at the end of the day, I am planting seeds, seeds of hopefully excellence, seeds of like I did the parenthood for five years because I just wanted to plant seeds of simple morality tales. Don't steal. Don't lie. You know, be honorable. And there's a whole generation of kids of color that are being raised by the television, but it's stuff that Mm -hmm. they shouldn't be watching. So when I did that, people like, why would Robert Townsend do a sitcom with just basic morals and values? And the thing for me was I grew up on the Andy Griffith show. And so a lot of my life lessons I learned when Andy was talking to Opie and it's like, Paul, why, why do I have to share Paul, Paul? Why do I have to be nice? Paul, why do I have to pray? And so when I would get those life lessons, it would reinforce what my teachers and my, my mother was telling me and my, my family. So I was like, I could probably raise a generation of kids for five years on this TV show and plant some seeds inside of them to make them walk a little bit taller, be a little bit prouder. So so when you say, well, what are you, what is your plan here? I've had people come up to me and say, you know, I watched the five heartbeats, man, and the same thing happened with me and my brother. He he, he slept with my fiance, But because of you, I forgave him. Mm. And I was like, really? He says, yeah, man, because I thought about that movie and I forgave him. So um, Meteor Man, I was planting seeds of having courage and you don't need superpowers. At the end of the day, he lost all of his powers and that's when he became a hero. So stand up for yourself, believe in what you, you know, what you believe in and you will always win. So I, on one hand, you may say, you know, wow, you really believe that. And, and I do, because anytime I've done my movies or television shows, there's, there's little nuggets that I plant. And I know I see people all the time that come up to me and say, you know what? You are my dad on the parenthood, man. I learned so much from you. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're like my father. I can't wait. I can't believe I'm, I'm meeting you. And I, that's what I had set an attention. And so, you know, so for me, um, a, a waterfall starts with a single drop. And I look at my life as being a drop and I'm just trying to, you know, trigger, you know, inspire, encourage as many artists as I can. You know, it's like next week I'm going to Chicago and Harry Lennox has started a school in Chicago, so I'm doing a master class, you know, in the hood, you know, for anybody that wants to come in Chicago. So I'm just constantly, I want to give back, uh, continue to create my art. Like right now, I've got a, a slate of stuff that is not to be believed and. Just now we're on the phone today negotiating, you know, navigating these waters because there's going to be some strike about to happen with the writers or something. And so just trying to figure out, you know, but I I, I love what I do and I love creating.
0: What does eating healthy mean to you?
1: From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: When you talk about Andy Griffith, you make me think about Sidney Poitier, similar time frame, and how I feel like you were taking from his example of the the, the dignity and the things that he was bringing to the table— and as well as the black exploitation era, right, which is a little more authentic, funny, you know, black. But, you know, we're still like telling there's still a message here. Sometimes the messages attack the system, but we're still telling. But is, are those two things sort of like in your head sort of inspiring you?
1: Uh, yeah. So let me say this. I never looked at the exploitation period. I never wanted to say black exploitation. Those were movies with my heroes. So it wasn't never, you know, it's like, oh, like one of my favorite films is The Mac. And what I love Mm, about The Mac was that it showed you the soul of a pimp. It showed you his world, his conflict and his 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 logic. And I I I thought Max Julian, who was one of my favorites, you know, and Roger Mosley I think that film, it had such a unique point of view. One of my favorite films is the spook who sat by the door. And mm. that film changed my life because it was about a revolution and it was about black folks working together and could change the system. And I remember it was in the theater one day and then that thing was gone. I was telling everybody at school and then it was gone. They were like, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, no, 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 this will get people of color to think about revolution. So, uh, and 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 Sidney Portier became my mentor. He became like my mentor in real life. You know, he was there for me. So I, I look at him, I look at Max Julian and all these other artists, and I go, like Ivan Dixon, his career ended because of Spook Who Sat by the Door. So, mm. you know, I, I've done a lot, but I've got a lot more to do, you know, because um I don't know. I, I think the, the 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 ball can be raised higher. That's all. I think the ball mm. can be raised higher.
0: What, what is some of the best advice you ever got from Sidney Poitier?
1: Oh, the power to say no. He, I remember mm. we had lunch one time and he says, I, you know, I go, man, I love you. I love you. You're working. He says, I haven't done that many movies. I've only done a handful of movies. He goes, I didn't accept everything that came along. I chose my roles very carefully. There is power in no, the power to say no. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) which makes a lot of sense because he says, I've only done a handful of movies. And when you think about To Serve With Love, In the Heat of the Night, uh, Paris Blues, you know, there's only... A handful that you really go, Sydney Poortier, Sidney Portier, Sidney Portier. So he was really schooling me, and I think I live by that. You know, I, I don't try to. If there's something that really speaks to me, I want to do it. You know, I'm I I feel like I've always I've I've always kept my integrity. I haven't done anything that I'm like, oh my god, I did that. You know, I've done a mm-hmm. lot of movies and television shows that now people you know kind of consider classics, and it's a good feeling.
0: Sure. So wait, so you're so you didn't do anything for the check that you're now like so you because right, so now you're like, I don't look it back at anything be like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. You never had you never did anything for the check. You did things that you wanted to do. You know, for
1: the most part, for the most part. I mean, the thing that I would say is that when you're a young actor, you're starting out, so you go like da-da-da-da. But I never you know, once I, you know, after Hollywood Shuffle, I said, this is who I am. <laughs> I was like, OK, I'm not going to do that. I'll do this. I won't do that. You know, but I just think that um, it's kind of just walking in in whatever. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's like when you have mentors like Mr. Portier and Mr. Belafonte, it's it's it it, it it comes with, you know, it's a heavy coat that you got to wear. So have you said no to a lot of things? I've said no to a lot of things, yes. Yes. I mean you know, let, let me say this. Um I have no regrets because when I saw the movies that I said no to, they were <laughs> bad. <laughs> I can name a lot of them, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blat, put anybody on blast, no, no, but no. they were bad. No, no. And I don't know, I just have a different kind of touch. I think what people like about my movies. TV shows is that you can look at it and you can say, Oh, you know, this one feels different. You know, I don't know. It feels, I'm laughing or, oh, I feel scared or whatever. And I, I just have a different touch.
0: I I think you do have a different touch. And I think I could pick out a Robert Townsend film if you erase the credits and I would still pick it up. Um, and I think that you are consistently giving us comedy with, a sort of intelligent edge and a moral edge. So um, it's not just comedy for the sake of it. There's a point and a thought behind these jokes or behind these emotions that the characters are going through.
1: Well, I I mean, thank you. I kind of like to look at it that way. I mean, it's whatever canvas I paint on, I I try to be true to that canvas. And I, I my mantra, my other mantra is going the extra mile. So, like when I was talking to you about the music, you know, not every director plays music and talks through a whole relationship and go, okay, tell me, da 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 da. But when you watch Kaleidoscope and you see that episode, you go, there's something, wow, you know, like I've never seen Giancarlo as kind of a romantic lead, and he's kind of charismatic and charming, and I want, I'm rooting for them to win. So whatever the, the story is, I, I have to dig in and go that extra mile to find that extra sauce because it's that sauce that makes it special.
0: So you've done so much over such a long period of time. You still got a lot to do. You're like, I still got more to say. What is the dream project that you want to do in, you know, in your next five, seven
1: years? I don't know if it's a dream project. It's just continuing to do quality work, continuing to do quality work and things that excite me and interest me. So there's a few things that I have right now. The one thing that I do want to do that, um, I did a show before COVID hit at the Berkeley, at the Marsh Theater in Berkeley, a one man show about my life. And, Mm. um, You know, I hadn't performed on stage in years and I had the best time. And it is a story. It's a story not to be believed. I mean, I died a few times on the west side of Chicago and it's like really high and really low. It's like um, uh, Frank Sinatra calls and says, I love the five heartbeats and I want to invite you to my birthday party in Vegas. I go to the birthday party. I'm sitting at the front row table. But when I get to the table, it's filled with the heads of the mafia. (laughs) And I'm sitting there at dinner and Frank is singing to me from the stage. It's the craziest night. And Don Rickles roast me. It was like the craziest night. So I have that story. I have a story of my favorite director in the world is Aaliyah Kazan. Mm. And, uh, uh, they're honoring him because he's getting an honorary Oscar. And, uh, I, that's the only director I wanted to meet because his movies affected me. East of Eden, a face in the crowd on the waterfront. And the day that I'm supposed to go meet him, there's a bomb threat at the DGA with bomb sniffing dogs. And instead of saying no, I show up and I'm the only one there. And then he eventually shows up. So it's all these stories about my life not to be believed. So uh, you want to make a film about that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Because how I got discovered, I'll say this real quick. In the fifth grade, there was a teacher that wanted us to read Shakespeare. And he gave us three pages in the fifth grade. And so I wanted to get an A on the paper, because when I read the three pages, it looked intimidating. Methinks, thou, though, and thus. So I go to the library and I steal all the Shakespeare records. And so I'm this kid, because I didn't know library cards. I just wanted to get an A and I'm a little kid in the hood. So I take the Shakespeare records home. My family wants to listen to the Temptations and the Supremes and all of that. And I'm listening to the Royal Shakespeare Company doing Othello, King Lear. Richard III. A horse, a horse. All he wants is a horse, anything. And I understood it. And when I read a scene in class, the teacher was like, oh my God, you have a gift. And that teacher took me under his wing, came past the pimps and the hustlers to get me white dude, James Reed. I named the character in Meteor Man after him. And he was the first one. I was like a little kid in the hood, welfare. And he was like, you could be somebody. And I was like, be somebody, be somebody. And that's, so it's all, but it's like me listening to the Royal Shakespeare Company. Like, I pray not the rage against my son, my soul. What news, my Lord? What news, my Lord? I know not of this. And I would hear all these voices and I was like, it's like radio on the record. And so the one man show is all these stories that I have that are not to be believed. And, uh, you know, and I win. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, so, so that's something I'm really excited about, you know, to, to take, I'd love to do it on, in, on stage in New York and go be on Broadway, you know? So right now I did it at the Berkeley, you know, and now, you know, I got a bunch of stuff that I'm working on. And so I, I want to get back to that. It's a, it's a, it's a journey. It's a journey.
0: That's amazing. that's, it's, you know, it's amazing that you thought of that. Cause I remember being assigned Shakespeare in ninth and 10th grade and struggling to read through it as everybody does. It never occurred to me to go get sonic recordings of it that maybe I would understand it audio or orally, but I'm not understanding if it, I think I got cliff notes that were like, he's saying, I love you. Okay. I got, it. I got it. But you're listening to it that, I mean like you as a fifth grader, the teacher gives you so much there right and he's a beautiful part of that story right. but that the fifth grade Robert did they call you Robert or they called you Bobby uh,
1: back then uh back then it was Robert it was Robert
0: so young Robert thinks go get the vinyl I I mean
1: that's amazing that you even thought of that You know, my brain has always thought differently. So when I went to listen to it and I just remember because he because when he because we had to read Oedipus in class, that's how I got discovered. And so, you know, it was like, you know, he goes, "Uh, Deborah, you'll be Ophelia, Willie, you'll be Oedipus and Robert, you'll be Tiresias, the blind prophet. Let's read. And Deborah read like a kid in the hood. Oedipus. You will marry thy mother in a piss. And I have been listening to the Royal Shakespeare. I pray not the rage upon thy soul. And after it was over, when I just remember, cause I didn't want to get in trouble cause I had stole the records. And he goes, how did you learn that? And I said, well, that's how they do it in England at the Royal Shakespeare company. There's this dude named Richard Burton. There's this dude named Paul Schofield, John Gilgood. That's how they do it. And the teacher was like, Oh, my God. And I didn't know I could do voices or anything. I was just listening to what I heard on the record, but I understood it. So so the one man show, it's all of these. It's all of these stories like here's a story. story. So there was so I'm in New York City and uh, I'm trying to audition and there's no work. I'm about to give up and all my friends are about to give up. And so on the Actors' Equity Lounge, there's a bulletin board with auditions on it. And we would go meet up there, get get warm from outside. And so one of my boys was really going through it. And I'm like, I'm like, and he's like, man, Rob, any work on the board? I says, nah, man, I mean, there's nothing here. And he goes, man, I know it's about the craft, man, but it's like ain't nothing working for me, man. My unemployment's running out. I said, mine's running out too, man. He goes, yeah, man, let me get over here, man. I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I said, you need some money? He goes, man, I can't take no money from you, Rob. I can't take no money from you. I go keep your head up, man. Keep your head up. Remember, you Denzel Washington. <laughs> True story. True story.
0: <sighs> I mean, you know, John David loves telling a story about how their first date she paid.
1: Cause he had nothing. Yeah, and there you are. Yeah, so so I mean, when you know, we talk about our New York days, and it was just like just figuring it out, and you know, and so it's just you know, so so all of these stories are in my show, you know, and when I tell them, people are like going, "Oh my God," you know, and it's just like twists and turns, and twisting and turns, and twisting and turns. But I, I I've been so 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 blessed. So I, I love what I, I do, you know, and and uh, to to live the life of an artist and enjoy and to continue to create, you know, and I've got so many more stories inside of me.
0: I want to ask you for your best story, but before that, I want you to tell me a story about one of my favorite people, one of your friends, Paul Mooney, one of the most incredible comedians of the past several decades. I know you guys were close and were like, you know, what do you, what do you got about Paul?
1: Um. So when I first got to LA Keenan called, well first I was living in New York, Keenan calls and says, "Hey Rob, you got to get to LA. This is the land of milk and honey. We could take this over." So he flies back to New York, puts all my stuff in a U-Haul. We f- we drive all the way across country, you know. Wow. And get to LA. He goes, "Man, we got to go to the comedy store tonight. There's this comedian that is going on stage at 1:30. You got to see." And then I'm like, "1:30?" If he's that good, why is he going on at one thirty? And then Keenan was like, Rob, shut up. Let's go to the comedy store. And so we go to the comedy store and I see Paul at 1.30 and he's absolutely brilliant. He is like the runaway slave that moved back to master's house and lived to talk. <laughs> and he's like, I don't care. Get out of here. I, 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 I've I, given my nigga friends enough time to break into your houses. And we, I, all the people were leaving and leaving and leaving. And so I was like, and I was sitting there and my brain was like, Oh my God, can you really say this on stage? This yeah. man is free. So yeah. cut to, I'm thinking I'm going to do Hollywood shuffle. And so I go to Paul, you know, and I'm like asking people to be in the movie. A lot of people said no to me. And so I say, Hey, Paul, uh, Mr. Mooney, I'm going to do a movie. Would you be in the movie? And he goes, Have you ever directed a movie before? And I go, No. Have you ever written a movie before? I go, No. He says, Either you're the dumbest nigga I've ever met or you're a genius. I'm in. (laughs) And, And he agreed to do the movie. Either you're the dumbest nigga I've ever met. Oh, you're a genius. And, uh, uh, and and he started to shoot. And then the next time um, I was doing Partners in Crime and I was like, Paul, they're giving me my HBO special. But I want everybody to be on the show. Damon Wayans is going to be his first time on TV. Uh, um, Don Reed is going to be on it. Uh, and I'm going to do the bold, the black, the beautiful, these sketches and everything. And I want you to close the show. And be the last comedian. And so then Paul was like, uh, you know who I am, right? You know I'm edgy, right? And so then he and I go, "Yeah, yeah, I want you to close the show. It's my show. It's a variety show." He goes, "Either you're the dumbest nigger I've ever met or you're a genius." <laughs> I'll do it. And he closed the show. It was controversy around it, but I was like, I love him so much that I was like, I do not care. This is a variety show and it, you know, HBO got the ratings for that special just was like, you know, because they were like, whoa, what are we watching? It's it's singing. It's Howard Hewitt singing, say, amen And Robert is up there and they're dancing and there's singers and blah, blah, blah. And then comedy, 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 Paul Mooney.
0: Paul fucking Mooney. I talked to him several times. I remember seeing him at Caroline's. Um when I was dating a very light-skinned girl and we went there with a very light-skinned black guy and his white girlfriend and they sat us right in the front and I was terrified the whole fucking, he's going to look at us and rip us apart. You, I, I got the lightest black girl I could find and he got a white girl who was blonde and I knew he, and, and the terror that he was going to comedically rip us apart the whole show, ter But I loved that I felt that terror. Right. Cause I was, I was in the room. I was alive. I was there with him. It's not a show. It's, it's, it's more of a happening, right? Like it wasn't going to be like a passive thing that I'm watching. It's happening over there on the stage. This show might happen to me. All right. I'm, I'm in the splash zone. We might get wet tonight. Like this, it, it was amazing. It was amazing. I don't think he made fun of us, but we were terrified that he would, um, I, so I know if you've got Paul Mooney stories, there's got to be a good Richard Pryor story.
1: You know, what's interesting about Richard is that uh, he signed me to my first deal in Hollywood. He had a wow. $40 million deal with Columbia, and George Jackson, who was running the company, brought him down to see me at the improv. And so uh, he was, you know, he was always around— But I got to know him even more when he got multiple sclerosis and Mm -hmm. I would go visit him. And the thing is that what I learned was that Richard, though his body was paralyzed, he could still laugh. And so I was talking to his wife, Jennifer, and we were saying something. And I forget that Richard can hear, you know what I mean? Because he's like this and then. I just remember he I told her a joke, and then I heard him going <laughs> 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 and she looked at me, goes he likes the joke, you know, and he was going, but it was uh, you, you know it was one of those moments because later on I would when when it started to hit him really bad, I would help him on the stage and he would do a stand up, and so a couple of us would lift him up on the stage, put him in the chair, he would do a stand up, but you no know, Richard Richard you know I mean he. I just remember late nights of me, Keenan, Arsenio, just sitting at the foot of the stage, watching Richard perform, work his material.
0: Thank you so much for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Toray Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. And maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Toray and on Instagram at Toray Show. Torre Show is written by me, Toray, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down.